Who would agree with me that we need more joy in our lives, more joy in our world? The joy that we need isn't just any joy. It's particularly the joy described in Scripture. So I was thinking about this today. The joy described in Scripture is actually kind of challenging. And the main reason I find it challenging is because the the way Scripture describes joy, it describes it as something that is meant to be normative for the life of those of us who follow Jesus. I mean, not as something that occasionally happens, but this is to be the, the normal quality of our lives, that we would have joy in the Lord. And while Scripture does describe this joy as normative, life shows us that many, many believers do not seem to have joy. And I'm not talking about people who don't occasionally have joy, but those who are consistently joyless. Right? The way that they, they complain and criticize and are negative about everything. And it doesn't matter what you may talk about. You could talk about job or hobbies or church or family. Everything. There is something wrong with each and every area of your life. It's sad to say, but the the truth is, sometimes believers are the least joyful people we know. I mean, if we were to make a list tonight of the top five least joyful people, Again, not just people that are having hard times and are struggling, but people who consistently complain. People who consistently criticize. People who are consistently negative about all things that really seem to be going on. If you make the list of the top ten, how many of those would be professing Christians? And it's, it's a tragedy Because believers ought to be the most joyful people around. Instead, in many cases as believers, we are more miserable and we have less joy than those who do not know Jesus. Now, if you are the Christian that does not have joy, it ought to bother you. It bothers me. How often I struggle to have the joy of the Lord evident and abounding in my life. What's even more tragic than Christians not having joy is that there are some who seem to rejoice in their joylessness. Now now these aren't people that are going through trials and tribulations. It's just that life is Kind of going the way it always goes. And yet, they're again, they're always sad. They're always angry. They're always complaining. They're always negative. They're always critical. And not only are these attitudes always present, they really seem to take pleasure in them. No matter what's going on, they look for and they find some reason to be unhappy. No matter what's going on, they look for and they find some reason to be angry. No matter what's going on, they look for and they find some reason to complain. No matter what's going on, they look for and they find some reason to be negative. No matter what's going on, they look for and they find some reason to be critical. To use the words of the Apostle James, my brethren, these things ought not to be so. We ought to be joyful. 
So I want to look tonight at a passage of Scripture and explain why believers should always have joy. Open your Bible to Philippians 4 and 4. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Philippians 4.4, familiar passage. We could probably all quote it. Paul writes, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, Rejoice. The title of the message tonight is Rejoice in the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you tonight. You are great and awesome. You are worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. Lord, we come tonight with a desire to meet with you. We have come out on this Wednesday evening, Father, Not to check a box, not to do what we've always done, but we've come tonight, Lord, to worship You in song, to worship You in word, to cry out to You on behalf of others, just to meet with You, to be strengthened by You, to be encouraged by You tonight. And so, Lord, we ask You to meet with us in this time. Lord, we surrender this time where we'll be in the Word. We surrender it to You. That, Lord, that we would have ears to hear and we would have hearts to receive whatever You have for us tonight. Father, help us. Help us to be a people who rejoice in the Lord always. And Lord, we know that there are times where joy is hard. And we know there are times where it's difficult to rejoice. And we'll talk about that. But oh God, help us to see that for the person who has committed their lives to the Lord Jesus Christ, there is always a reason to rejoice. Father, if we are If we lack joy in our lives, stir up a sense of discontent within us about that. Lord, if we are a people who always look for a reason to be unhappy, a reason to criticize, a reason to be negative, a reason just to gripe and complain, bother us about that. Help us tonight to look in the mirror of the Word and see the kind of joy that ought to characterize our lives. Let us long for it and let us cry out for it and let us experience it through Christ and through the Holy Spirit. Fill me tonight with your Holy Spirit and give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. Help me, O God, that I would not say anything you don't want said. Lord, everything tonight, it would be from you and it would be for your glory. Have your way, we ask in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen. You may be seated. The book of Philippians was written around 55 A.D. by the Apostle Paul. It's it's one of the letters that's called the prison epistles. And can you guess why it was called a prison epistle? Because Paul wrote it from a Roman prison. Now the, the fact that he wrote this from a Roman prison will become important later on. But just keep that in the back of your mind that as Paul wrote this letter, he was writing from a prison that he had been in for quite a while. Now the letter was written in part to thank them for some support they had sent him during his time of need. And as he decided to write to thank them, he also spent some time to teach them and instruct them on how to live a Christian life, how to be a church that would glorify God. Now in our text, Paul says to rejoice in the Lord. Now there are two facts about this verse that could be easily overlooked, but shouldn't be. The first is, it's a command. Have you ever thought about that? Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, rejoice. That's an imperative. 
He is saying this is what you must do. As believers, we are commanded to rejoice in the Lord. The second truth or fact that could be easily overstated or overlooked is the fact that we are commanded to rejoice always. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. The Greek word for always, it means always. In all situations, at all times. What does it mean to rejoice always? It means to rejoice in the darkness as well as the light. It means to rejoice when times are hard, not just when times are easy. It means to rejoice in the valley and not just on the mountaintops. It means to rejoice always. And that's quite a command. That is a difficult command of Scripture. And yet, notice why we can do this. Rejoice in the Lord. Right, that's that's the command. Not just rejoice, but rejoice in the Lord. Now to properly understand what it means to rejoice in the Lord, we have to understand, one, what it is to rejoice And then we have to understand why in the Lord. We'll talk about those things tonight. Rejoice is the verb form of the noun joy. According to the dictionary.com, the word rejoice, it means to be glad or to take delight in. When we are rejoicing, we are glad about something or we are delighting in something. Joy, again, according to dictionary.com, is an emotion of great delight or happiness caused by something exceptionally good, or satisfying. When we have joy, it is because something is exceptionally good or satisfying, and that has been brought into our lives, and that thing brings us joy. Rejoicing is just joy in action. Throughout Scripture, there is the very real idea that the Christian life should be characterized by joy. Ideally, our joy is to burst forth in such a way that those without Jesus will see it and they will wonder. Why we live the way that we live. Why do we have joy when things around us should steal the joy out of our lives? Now the idea of, of rejoicing and having joy in the Christian life, it, it, it can sound odd to some. Right? Because their, their idea of the Christian life has been shaped by images of, of dour, angry, religious people. Who, who are angry and they're unhappy. But they're not only angry and unhappy, they, they kind of seem to want everybody else to be as angry and as unhappy as they are. Uh, we knew a guy at Fort Gibson that talked about he, was, he felt like he'd been baptized in pickle juice because he always walked around with kind of a soured up, angry look on his face. And he, he envied people, he said, who seemed to have more joy than him. And this is unfortunate that people's idea of Christianity is shaped by by that mindset because it is very unbiblical. Joy and rejoicing are, are Christian virtues and biblical words. The word joy is found in its various forms around just over 200 times in our English Bibles. The word rejoice is found around 300 times in our English Bibles. We also find multiple synonyms for joy and rejoice. The Bible frequently speaks of believers having delight and gladness and pleasure and many other things. 
So with all the references to joy in the Scripture, it again is somewhat tragic that there are so many people in so many places who think being a believer means living a life devoid of joy. That sort of joyless life is not biblical. It's not Christian. The call to the Christian life is in some sense a call to joy. To rejoice in the Lord always. However, it is the fact that it's in the Lord is what separates the Christian's joy from the world's joy. Right? The world offers us a, a myriad of things that we could focus on and we could try to seek joy from them. Like things like toys, wealth and possessions, sexual pleasure, academic or vocational success, ease and comfort, family, on and on and on it could go. The world offers us these things to try to find joy. And where the world offers multiple sources of joy, Christianity offers only one, Jesus. Jesus is the source of our joy. Jesus is the foundation of our joy. Jesus is the ultimate and only lasting source of complete joy there is. Right? And so when we talk about rejoice in the Lord, part of what we have to know is that Jesus alone is the source of true joy. And again, that, that's going to be significant because the world is going to offer us so many things. Life is going to throw so many things at us and all things change except Jesus. And we'll get to Jesus more in, in a minute. But when Jesus is the source of our joy, we can always rejoice. Years ago, I heard a, a sermon on the joy of the Lord. It was one of the best sermons I've ever heard in my whole life. And the guy gave a definition of Christian joy that is, in my mind, the best definition there ever could be about Christian joy. He said that Christian joy is a deep, durable delight in Jesus that ruins you for anything else. Joy is a deep, durable delight in Jesus that ruins you for anything else. I mean, that is a great statement. But not only is that just a great statement, that is a very biblical statement. And when we look through Scripture, we find all of those ideas in there. Right? So the joy of the Lord is, is deep. Right? Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand are pleasures forevermore. I, I could spend all night on that verse. It's one of my very favorite verses. Because notice what it says. It is all of what we've talked about so far in there. Right? It is at thy right hand. So it's in the presence of God. And with God, what is there? There is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. Now, the reason the joy from Jesus is deep is because we get the full measure of it. We get the fullness of all that there is meant to be and all that is meant in joy. We get that. In Jesus, nothing in this world, nothing in this life offers us the fullness of joy. Now, pleasures isn't really a part of the message, but notice quickly, there are pleasures forevermore. What in life, what in this world offers you eternal pleasures? What about, I mean, can, is there anything? Is there anything that will last all of life and always bring pleasure? 
I mean, think about like, think about just even how you change. Are there shows maybe that you liked at one point that now you don't like? At one point you looked forward to it, you watched them, and you loved them, but now maybe they're boring. It's the same plot over and over again. It just doesn't bring you joy anymore. Or a, a, technologi- a technological gadget. It brought you great joy, but, but there's always a newer gadget coming out. Or something you once had, but you lost it, and now it's gone forever. And even if it doesn't get lost, and even if your tastes don't change, one day you're going to die. Is that joy? The pleasure you get from that, is that going to carry on into heaven? The only, the only pleasure that lasts forevermore is the pleasure we get from Jesus. Jesus fully satisfies our longings for joy. Jesus fully satisfies our our longings for pleasure. The joy of the Lord is, is durable because it stays with us. And it sustains us through the hard times of life. But the joy of the Lord is, is durable because it enables us when we've been beaten and put in prison wrongfully, to be at midnight rather than feeling sorry for ourselves, to be singing and praising God so loudly that the other prisoners hear us like Paul and Silas and Philippi. The joy of the Lord, it it, it enables us to so delight in Jesus that it changes how we serve Him. You know, many times, Many times, if we're honest, our service for Jesus, it's, it's based on, on have-tos. And I got-tos. And I need-tos. But when we have joy in Jesus, it changes to a, a want-to, a get-to, a glad-to, an excited-to. And again, if we're honest, isn't that often missing? In our relationship and our service to Jesus. It is a deep, durable delight in Jesus. It's not limited to joy in what Jesus can do for us. Although that's there. But it's also a joy in just who He is. That He is great and awesome. That He is the best thing that there is. That receiving Him is the greatest treasure we could ever have. And when we experience this joy, it ruins us for anything else because everything else falls short of the joy that we receive from the Lord. Let me show you a practical example of this. Turn to Psalm 63, page 441. Psalm 63 is possibly my favorite psalm. And most Bibles probably have a heading over this in in this psalm. In my Bible, the heading says, A Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Now, we don't know exactly when he was in the wilderness of Judah according to this, which one it was. 
But we know it from Scripture at least two times when David was in the wilderness of Judah. One was when he was running from his life from King Saul. He ran and hid in a cave. Another time was when he was running from his life from his son Absalom, who was also out to take his life. So whatever was going on that prompted him, whether it was Saul or Absalom, David is running from his life, running for his life. Someone is out to kill him. And in this psalm, David expresses the joy that he has in God, despite the hardship and the trouble that's going on in his life right now. He expresses that his joy doesn't come from his safety, from his position, from his crown. It comes from his fellowship and his relationship with the Lord. The theme of the psalm is David desires God more than anything else because God is better than anything else. And as you read the psalm, we see that that David definitely had experienced a deep, durable delight in God that had ruined him for everything else. Look at how he describes his desire for God in verse 1. O God, Thou art my God, early will I seek Thee. My soul thirsteth for Thee, my flesh longeth for Thee in a dry and thirsty land where there is, where no water is. Have you ever been out in the woods or out working somewhere where it's really hot? And you got thirsty, you got parched, you got dehydrated, kind of the point that your tongue was dry and sticking to the roof of your mouth. And you wanted a drink of cold water, you wanted a drink of something to quench your thirst, but but there was nothing where you were. Maybe you forgot to take it, whatever, you just did not have anything. That longing that you had for water in that moment is the picture that David has of his longing for God. He is that thirsty. He is that desiring of God. And yet where he's at and what's going on, God is not in this world. That's what he says. But where, there, where no water is. Right? There is nothing here that will satisfy me. There is nothing here, God, that will, that will fill the longing and the thirst I have for you. You alone are what I need. He goes on in verse 2 and says, To see thy power and thy glory. As I have seen thee in thy sanctuary. Because thy loving kindness is better than life. My lips shall praise thee. Thus will I bless thee while I live. I will lift my hands to thy name. David had experienced God's power. God's presence. And he wanted more of it. But notice what he says about it in verse 3. Because thy loving kindness is better than life. Think about that. I mean, that's a, that's a big statement, right? The loving kindness of God, the presence of God, the grace and the mercy of God was better than life. If the choice was never experience God again and live or die and go to be with God, David's choice, kill me now and let me go to God because His loving kindness, His Goodness, it is better than life. Now David's not given a theological treatise on the love and the nature of God. He's simply talking about his experiences with God. He's talking about what God meant to him. The impact of these experiences would alter David's life forever. 
And since he had experienced God in these ways, he had known the loving kindness of God. that he couldn't help but praise him. The end of verse 3, My lips shall praise thee, thus I will bless thee while I live. I will lift up my hands in thy name. My soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth shall praise thee with joyful lips. Right? I mean, David, his, his recognition of the goodness and the greatness of God was such that the picture is that he just couldn't help but break forth in praise and worship to God. That it was a natural thing for him to just talk about how good and how wonderful God was. Why David was, he was not even afraid to raise his hands at the fact that God was awesome. That his loving kindness was better than life. And I love verse 5. Because he's speaking about his satisfaction in God. My soul shall be satisfied with marrow and fatness, and my mouth shall praise thee with joyful lips. Now, be satisfied with marrow and fatness doesn't really communicate in our days so well. So I like how the New Living Translation says it. And it says that God satisfied David more than the richest feast. Um, I don't know about you, what that communicates to you. I like food. I like everything about food. right? I like to cook. I like to plan my menus. I like to shop for the right, the right ingredients. I sniffle my thump on my listen. I don't know what I'm doing, but I like to do all of that stuff. I like to cook big, elaborate meals, and I like to eat those big, elaborate meals. I, I enjoy food. And David is a king. I'm sure he enjoyed food as well. I'm sure he enjoyed the finest of what the world had to offer at that time. And yet what David says is, that what he received from God was better than the greatest feast he had ever had in his life. That the richest feed, that the biggest banquet you could plan and have, it pales in comparison to the pleasure and the joy and the satisfaction that is found in God. Nothing, nothing was as good as the joy David received from God. Again, he would break out in praise. He just couldn't help it. And this was kind of all the time David thought about God like this. Right? Notice what he goes on to say. When I remember thee on my bed and I meditate on thee in the night watches. Right? It's just a picture that all throughout David's day, his mind drifted to the goodness and the greatness of God. To the joy of he received from God. During the day, he would praise God. And during the day, he would declare God's greatness. But as he went to bed at night and he tried to go to sleep, he just couldn't help his mind from wandering. Not to his troubles. Not to what Absalom was doing. Not to what Saul might have been doing. How wonderful his God was. How good his God had been to him. And even in his bed, he rejoiced. Because he knew that no matter what was going on in his life right now, God had been with him in the past. God would be with him in the future. God was good. And the joy of the Lord was his strength. When Paul tells us to rejoice in the Lord always, he is telling us to have this kind of joy that David is talking about here. The kind of joy that causes us to, to bless the Lord with joyful lips. Now that, again, I don't have a lot of time to get into that. But just think about, even when we gather 
and we sing. Does praise the Lord with joyful lips, does that describe how you sing when we gather together and worship the Lord? I mean, I'm not even talking about the times, what we do during the day when it should burst out, but I mean just here. We have gathered in a place dedicated to God as the people of God to sing praises to God. When we do that, does it burst forth from joyful lips in our life? It ought to. The joy of the Lord should just guide us as we praise and as we worship the Lord. And this deep, durable delight for Jesus, it, it, it ruins us, as the explanation said, for anything else. And really though, to understand why it's a deep, durable delight that ruins us for anything else, we do have to understand who Jesus is. Not because it's the joy of the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. And I know we probably mention this and we talk about this often here, but it is always something to be reminded of. But Jesus is not just a meek and lowly, miracle-working carpenter from Galilee. But He is had always existed and had lived in glory from eternity past. His glory was such that in Isaiah, I'm sorry, in John 12 and 41, we're told that the glory that Isaiah saw in his vision was Jesus' glory. Now, that's powerful because what is the picture of Isaiah? Where did Isaiah see God's glory? In Isaiah 6. So when we read Isaiah 6 and we see the Lord high and lifted up and His train fills the temple and the angels do not cease to praise Him, that is Jesus from eternity past and that is Jesus. Now, when next we see Jesus, He'll not be the meek and mild carpenter. Instead, He will be great and glorious and awesome. He will be much more of what Isaiah saw than what the people in the Gospels saw. We will see a great and glorious, elevated and glorified Christ. And it's only when we see Jesus in this way can we stand in awe of what He did for us on the cross. That Jesus, the great and glorious and awesome God of Revelation 4 and Isaiah 6, willingly gave up that glory, took on human flesh, and went to the cross for you, for me. Jesus, the great, glorious, and awesome God of Revelation 4 and Isaiah 6, He demonstrated His love for us By dying on the cross for our sins. I mean, all of our sin was poured out upon Him in that time. Jesus, the great, glorious, and awesome God of Revelation 4 and Isaiah 6, demonstrated His power by rising from the dead, never to die again. Jesus, the great, glorious, and awesome God of Revelation 4 and Isaiah 6, promised to forgive us of our sins and and has put His Spirit within us. Jesus, the great, awesome, and glorious God of Revelation 4 and Isaiah 6, 
has promised to be with us always, to never leave us nor forsake us. And so much more. Can you imagine the great and glorious God of Revelation 4 and Isaiah 6 having thoughts about us as individuals? I mean, He is so much greater than us. And yet He takes thought not just for humanity as a whole, but for us as individuals. Do you ever come across an anthill in your backyard? Do you ever take thought to what that ant colony is like? To what the ants are doing? What their needs are? What's going on in their lives? Do you take the time to know about each an individual ant in that colony? Do you try to learn the differences between them to see if you can tell the the difference between one and the other? When they're out gathering stuff, do you clear a path and help them to get where they need to go? I'm betting none of us have ever done any of those things. And yet, God, who is as great over us, greater over us than we are over ants, He looked down at us and cared about us as individuals and made plans for us as individuals. Thought about us as individuals. The knowledge of this should fill our hearts with such joy we cannot help but rejoice, as Peter said. And having not seen you love, in whom though now you See Him not, yet believing. You rejoice with joy unspeakable, full of glory. I mean, that is, I love that verse. Joy unspeakable. The joy of the Lord is so great that we can't even adequately describe it at times. And it is a joy of the Lord always. This joy doesn't fail us when we need it the most. Instead, this joy is as strong in the hard times as it is in the good times. In fact, this passage is written at the end of a section where Peter deals with them going through fiery trials. So they're going through fiery trials because of their faith in Jesus. And yet in the midst of those, they love Jesus They've not seen Him yet, but they rejoice and they have a joy unspeakable, full of glory. You know, we often have a hard time reconciling the idea of joy and hardship going together. And yet in Scripture, they very often do. The joy of the Lord, this deep, durable delight in Jesus that ruins us for everything else, it isn't the absence of hardship, it isn't the absence of a trial or a sorrow. It is something that stays with us even in the midst of those times and it sustains us. We see this in the life of the Apostle Paul. 2 Corinthians, on two different occasions, he he mentions some of the hardships that he had gone through. In 2 Corinthians 6, he gives what I would call his short list. And we don't have time to look at it tonight, but I do want to point out one verse coming at the very end of it. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Isn't that an interesting contrast of ideas? Sorrowful and yet rejoicing at the same time. 
This is a very important verse when we talk about the joy of the Lord. Feelings of sorrow over hardships and trials and difficulties that come into our life, it's not unspiritual. It's not sinful. That's not abnormal. The point of the joy of the Lord isn't to make us feel bad because of the heartaches that we experience in this life. Paul understood sorrow. Paul understood hardship. Yet in his hardships, in his sorrow, Paul still had joy because of Jesus. Since Jesus was the source of his joy, he could rejoice in the Lord always. In the good times and in the bad times. Because Jesus was unchanging. This is what it means to rejoice in the Lord always. This joy, it only comes... Through Jesus. It only comes when Jesus is the source of our joy. Now, if we want this kind of a joy, I believe Scripture teaches we can have it. I believe all of us can have it. But there are three questions that I thought of that I think we have to answer to experience it. Do I believe this kind of joy is possible? That's a, that's a huge question. I mean, do we even believe that it's possible to live with joy unspeakable and full of glory. The fullness of joy. To be sorrowful and yet always rejoicing. Do we believe that Jesus can give us that kind of a joy? You know, the honest truth is some people don't. There are people, professing believers, and I'm not calling them professing believers because I'm saying they're not. I don't know that, but what I'm saying is, They would say they are Christians. And yet they would look at what we've talked about tonight and they would conclude that it may sound good, but it's not real. It's a pie-in-the-sky idea, but it's not down on the earth in the mud and grime of earth right now. It's just not possible to live that way. Before we would ever have that deep, durable delight in Jesus that ruins us for everything else, we, we have to at the very least believe that it's possible to live that way. Secondly, do I want to have this kind of joy? Again, do we, do we want to have a deep, durable delight in Jesus that ruins us for everything else? Do we want to rejoice, have joy unspeakable that's full of glory? Again, the reality is some people don't. Some people like to gripe and complain. Some people like to meditate on all of the injustices that have been done to them. Some people like to criticize and to judge. And when we, when we like those things, we will never have this kind of a joy because I can't be filled with the joy of the Lord and gripe about everything going on at the same time. One gives way to the other. But I can't rejoice with joy unspeakable and meditate on all the wrongs everybody's ever done to me in my life at the same time. One must give way to the other. So do I even want to have this kind of joy? Do I Am I willing to let go of my griping and complaining? Let go of meditating on all of the injustices I perceive that have been done to me? Let go of criticizing and judging and looking for reasons to be unhappy? 
Do I want this kind of a joy? And then finally, this one's similar, but it's a little bit different. Do I really want Jesus alone to be the source and the foundation of my joy? Do we really want to find greater joy in Jesus than we do in food or sex or sin or money or position or power? Or vacation, or vocation, or toys, or you name it. Do we really, really want to desire and love Jesus to the extent that, like Paul said in Philippians earlier, that he had suffered the loss of all things and counted them but dumb in comparison to finding Jesus Christ? Do we want to see Jesus as so precious and so worthy that everything else is done in comparison? Jesus told a story about a man who found a pearl, who found a pearl of great price, and a man who found a treasure in a field. And in both stories, the man who found the pearl of great price, he went and sold all that he had to go and buy the pearl. The man who found the treasure in the field, went and sold all that he had to go and buy the treasure in the field. And in both cases, it says that they did that with joy. Because the treasure that they found was worth so much more than everything they had. Do we want to see in Jesus such immeasurable value that if called upon by the Lord, we would sell all that we have And we would give to the poor. And we would follow Him to the ends of the earth. Because Jesus is worth more than the loss of house, money, car, comfort, and ease. Are we willing to look to Jesus alone? We cannot come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I really want this joy, but I'm going to still try to make you plus this other thing. My joy. It won't work. Do we really want Jesus as the source? How different would our lives be if we had this kind of a joy? How different would our homes be if they were characterized by this kind of a joy? How different would our church be if we were all characterized by this kind of a joy, what kind of a difference would we make in our community if we all lived and had this kind of a joy? Let's find out. Let's seek it. Let's believe it. Let's pray for it. And let's experience the deep, durable delight in Jesus that ruins us for everything else.